earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends, and thanks for joining me today. Whether you're listening in your car, catching the program on your mobile device, or maybe even listening via the podcast. Today, one of our words for the new year is bridges. Now, of course, the word bridges itself is not found in our Bibles, but the idea or concept certainly is. In fact, our jumping-off point will be the story of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. And the absolutely key question I'd like us to ponder today is, are we building bridges or are we erecting roadblocks? But before we turn our attention to John chapter 4 and our key question, I'd like to share with you a bumper sticker I saw some time ago on the back of a car I happened to be following one day while out driving. The bumper sticker said, I love God, but it's his fans I can't stand. Now, initially, this may give us a good laugh, but what is this message actually telling us, friends? I wish I could have met this person at the next traffic light and asked them what they meant, but that didn't come about. A number of years ago, the Barna Research Group released a study on attitudes held by unchurched young people between the ages of 16 and 29 years in America and their impressions of Christians. Are you ready for the results? I almost think that none of us are actually really ready for what these results showed. First place. 91% said we Christians are anti-homosexual. Second place, 87% said we Christians are judgmental. And third place, 85% said we Christians are hypocritical. <sighs> Not something to laugh at anymore, huh? I don't think this is the reputation we want to have, do we? I don't think this is the picture we want painted by outsiders, do we? I guess the vinegar approach is not working so well, is it? Friends, if that Barner report doesn't cut us to the quick, we're in deep doo-doo. If we don't sense an immediate drive and passion to work at reversing those impressions, I'll say it again. We're in deep doo-doo. A Christian talk show host I listen to periodically remarks many times on his program, The gospel is offensive enough. We don't have to add to the offense 
by how we present it. Author David T. Olson, in his 2008 book, The American Church in Crisis, reported that 3,700 churches close their door permanently every year. That's 71 a week. Olson feared that if those trends continued, church attendance would drop to under 15% of the U.S. population by 2020. Well, here we are in 2020, and I wonder how close his predictions have come. The situation appears to be worse as church planters and researchers monitor what is happening to young people in America. Tom Rayner, Southern Baptist Seminary researcher, after an extensive interview process of generational categories, discovered that only 15% of Gen Xers, who now are between the ages of 38 and 53, and only 4% of Gen Yers, who are now over 25, are likely born again. The efforts of parachurch organizations also confirm the dismal fact that traditional evangelism methods are decreasing in effectiveness with younger generations. Even more sobering is the trend occurring among younger age Christians that they're leaving their churches, not because they have lost their faith, but because they want to preserve it. Go figure. Man, kind of brings that bumper sticker back to mind, doesn't it? I love God, but it's his fans I can't stand. When these Christian young people were surveyed, they responded that church no longer contributes to their faith. Instead, it has become detrimental to it. Sixty percent of today's Christian youth report that they are having leaving church because they are disillusioned. In fact, as a result of these findings, church missiologists and church growth researchers have had to invent a new category, de-churched people. Well, friends, here's a good place to bring back the bridge idea. Maybe you have a favorite bridge you drive over. Maybe you're traveling around America or even abroad and like or love a particular bridge. Or maybe the purely practical function of a bridge hasn't made you think much of how it looks or what it really does. All you know is you have to go over it to get where you want to go. But let's just think for a minute what would be the consequences if any particular bridge was not there. What might be the result, the outcome? Well, believe it or not, this brings us to John chapter 4. But friends, it's significant that we not gloss over what takes place in John chapters 2 and 3. In John 2, we learn that Jesus and his disciples were in Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And in chapter 3, we have the well-known encounter Jesus has with Nicodemus, one of the high religious figures and a member of the Jewish religious ruling council. 
Then in John chapter 4, we have Jesus' encounter and conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. Here, friends, Jesus demonstrates his proactive and intentional attempt to build a bridge to witness to her. Friends, this truth is important enough for me to repeat it. In John chapter 4, Jesus demonstrates his proactive and intentional attempt to build a bridge to witness to this Samaritan woman. Now, friends, outside of John chapter 4, I'd like to just highlight four key instances in the New Testament where bridge building occurs. There are others, but these four, in my estimation, stand out. First, we have John 3. I mentioned that, the encounter of Jesus and Nicodemus. Secondly, Matthew chapter 13, with Jesus and some of the common people. Then Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 14, Paul is in a synagogue. And then Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 16, with Paul and some of the pagan Greeks gathered at Mars Hill. What I find particularly interesting about these accounts is noticing how both Jesus and Paul built bridges to their differing audiences and how these encounters provide a guide for us to take these principles and adapt them for ourselves. Now our passage for today, John chapter 4. What I'd like us to observe here is that in verse 4 it says, He, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. But friends, from a purely geographical standpoint, Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. So I believe this signals something for us. Jesus was on a mission. This was not a practical maneuver for Jesus. It was a spiritual maneuver. You see, when we read John's gospel, we have to tap into the spiritual significance of the events and teachings he records. Here, John especially wants us to become familiar with the historical precedent of the bad blood between Jews and Samaritans. After the woman comes to draw some water, and the disciples have already gone into town for some food, Jesus begins a conversation with her. But in verse 9, her reply is significant. You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Please, let's not read this the way I just did. Let's please put on first-century sandals and read this statement with the bad blood in the backdrop. How about we read it with the tone that is likely there? You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Friends, why do I suggest we read it that way? Because John supplies us with an explanation at the end of verse 9 
for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, an alternate way of understanding this can be, for Jews do not use dishes Samaritans have used. I believe the idea behind this alternate understanding comes from a later rabbinic comment that he who eats the bread of a Samaritan is as he who eats swine's flesh. Well, after all, wasn't Jesus accused of being a Samaritan and possessed by a demon in the same breath? Just check out John eight forty eight. So we know that there was a long history of racial and cultural tensions and conflicts between Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans were half-breeds, unclean, untouchable, not worthy to even share a meal with. They were hated and despised. Let's bring this forward and put our own 21st century spin on it. Christians do not associate with homosexuals. Christians don't touch the same dishes sinners have used. Friends, I got to tell you this. The more I read the Gospels and Jesus' teachings, the more I'm convinced that Jesus devoted the bulk of his teaching ministry to peeling back the layers of inbred cultural and religious prejudices held by his disciples. This whole trip to Samaria was to test them and see how they'd respond to a half-Jew a half-breed, if you will, a Samaritan. After all, how would Jesus prepare these guys to be world changers? How would he eventually expect them to take his message to the Gentiles, the pagans, the heathen, ultimately? You see, friends, Jesus sees the gospel, and correctly so, as liberating, as freeing. Sadly, we sometimes forget that the gospel's intent is to release us from our bondages, not add more to our already bondage-laden lives, not only our sin bondages, but our psychological bondages, our emotional bondages, our physical bondages, even our racial and cultural bondages. In other words, the preconceived notions that keep us stuck and bound and which inhibit us from truly reaching out to the sin-sick world around us and keep us from building relational bridges to the hurting and needy. So this is why John states in John chapter 4, verse 4, that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Friends, let me suggest two reasons here in this immediate context. First, Jesus had a half-breed woman to liberate. And second, Jesus had disciples to liberate. 
Here in John 4, Jesus gave his disciples a personal demonstration on just how to liberate non-pure Jews. And I want to see here how Jesus uses natural bridges. For the woman at the well, he used the water bridge. Note verse 10. Jesus answers her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So here's Jesus' goal to correct a Samaritan woman's misconception of who he is. Friends, who do people say that I am remains the premier question in the 21st century, just as it did in the 1st century. Jesus is not just a teacher or a prophet. He is the Son of God, the Messiah for Jews for Samaritans, and for Gentiles. In other words, the whole world. A very quick history lesson is in order here. The Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures, also known as the Pentateuch. So this opened a natural door, a natural bridge, for Jesus to declare to her that he was the I Am, the I Am of Exodus 3.14. The second bridge that Jesus uses here is the eternal bridge. Jesus takes this opportunity to differentiate between temporary satisfaction and permanent satisfaction. Though natural water kept the Samaritan woman coming back for more, supernatural water satisfies permanently and has eternal benefits. The Samaritan woman, I believe, was catching on and began connecting the dots. In verse 15, she tells Jesus, Sir, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. In this way, she acknowledged the temporary satisfaction of natural water. Then, I believe, she sidesteps the central issue. This is because Jesus brings in bridge number three, the moral bridge. This becomes the bridge she doesn't want to cross, at least initially. She evades the moral truth by bringing up the mountain for proper worshiping. Friends, it never ceases to amaze me that even well-meaning Christians boil things down to real estate. In other words, physical places or things. And I'm convinced that Satan's greatest tool, his greatest weapon, if you will, is to get us Christians to major in the minors. And we fall for it every time. Someone once said, the main thing is to make the main thing the main thing. 
For Jesus, the main thing was to get the Samaritan woman to see the main thing was not where one worships, but who one worships. He leads her there by telling her that the Father seeks true worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth, not necessarily in a particular geographic location. Now, the beauty of this entire exchange between Jesus and this Samaritan woman is how she progresses in her mind to see Jesus as her Messiah. She begins with, Sir. Then she perceives Jesus is a prophet. And finally, she asks in verse 29, Could this be the Messiah? She asks this question in the context of her traveling to the town and letting the townspeople know that Jesus revealed her sins to her. When she returns to the well and Jesus, the disciples have already returned. And this, friends, is where Jesus liberates his disciples The townspeople come to Jesus and make this amazing statement customized for Jesus' disciples' ears. We no longer believe just because of what this woman said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man, Jesus, really is the Savior of the world. Because right before the people began flocking to Jesus, he said to the disciples, Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are white for harvest, in verse 35. And by the way, white is the correct translation here. It is very likely that the people in that day dressed in white toga-like clothes with white turbans on their heads due to the heat— Instead of saying ripe for harvest, as would actual grain be, Jesus calls the townspeople, human beings, ripe for harvest. You see, friends, I honestly believe that we Christians have become very poor lookers. Many of us no longer are opening our eyes to see the fields that are ripe for harvest. And these fields are around us every day. Another way I like to say this is that we Christians don't have our spiritual antennae up and catching the signal the Holy Spirit is broadcasting to us. So, friends, as the Samaritan woman at the well account draws to a close, the main truth Jesus precisely wants his disciples to realize has come true. He is no longer just the Savior Messiah of the Jews alone. He is the Savior Messiah of the whole world. Well, the story ends where it begins. Jesus has to go to Samaria, so both the Samaritans and his disciples would come to realize that he was the Savior given for the entire world, and he used well water as a simple bridge to accomplish all this. So, friends, the primo question we need to be asking ourselves is, what kind of bridges are we? And this ties in with the challenge I began with. Are we building bridges or are we erecting roadblocks? 
I must say that I'm continually amazed at how Jesus is the most incredible discerner of the obvious. He knew just how to begin a conversation and carry it through to get to the heart of the spiritual matter. Well, how about us? Can we say we have a firm grasp of the obvious when it comes to building a bridge to conversations that eventually lead someone to spiritual conclusions that Jesus is the Savior of the world? Do we know how to begin with a natural bridge and allow it to dovetail into a spiritual bridge? The three natural bridges Jesus used, water bridge, eternal bridge, and the moral bridge, serve as examples and principles for us. So let's pray that the Holy Spirit, through the scriptures, equips us to see the natural bridges we can make and use in this year 2020. Well, friends, I sense we're near the end of today's program, and as this new year has already begun unfolding, as a local pastor, I am honored to pray for you. Perhaps some of you would like some extra prayer support. Listen to the end of the broadcast. It will close with an email where I can be reached, so please listen for it. You may also contact me at this email to learn how you can financially help this listener-supported program. Thanks for listening. And please remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.